And welcome to our podcast, Sounding Off with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. And I am thrilled to have on the line with me, Lisa Bennett. She is an entrepreneur and uh, she is the owner of Wild Skies, which is a fabulous vacation cabin out on the Western Slope here in Colorado. But we're talking about something very concerning to both of us, and that is election manipulation, election fraud. So we're going to call this Election Manipulation Slash Fraud 101. And uh, Lisa Bennett, you've been doing a lot of research on this, so where should we start? Well, I want to lay the the groundwork here that this is not a partisan issue. It's definitely nonpartisan. This issue affects both I I say both parties, but there's multiple parties. I'm sure it affects the Libertarian and Green Party, but uh, ideally it really focuses on Republicans versus Democrats. And we all need to have integrity in our election systems, and our election systems need to be transparent in addition to free and fair. And our elected officials, including the bureaucrats that run our elections, need to be accountable for actions. And I think that the biggest reason why people feel that elections are stolen and maybe their votes don't count is because of the intentional lack of transparency or the unwillingness of those in a position of power to provide us with the information, the data, the true audits that are required to show that the system is working the way it's intended to work. And the only way, I believe, to overcome a lot of people feeling that elections aren't fair and free is to get rid of the machines, because that gets rid of a lot of the question marks. And I think that's why you see a lot of people across the country saying, not only let's go back to hand-count ballots, but we also need to correct the vulnerabilities and flaws that allow people to cheat even if they are hand-counted. So, Lisa, when we talk about these machines, I think it's important to clarify that there are, I think there's machines that people have voted on, but what we're talking about is the machines that actually, I would say, um, tabulate the voting results, correct? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Some people call them election machines. Some people call them tabulators. Essentially, they're interchangeable terms. If you were in the industry, you might not say that they're interchangeable, but for the common person, we're going to say that those terms are interchangeable. Okay, and why is there a problem with these uh, tabulating machines? Well, that's that's the thing. If, if anyone is familiar with working with Microsoft Excel, they know that you can type things into the cell. You can type in the number 20, for example. But if there's a formula that's been applied to that cell, it can say whatever number is entered into this particular cell, you need to do this mathematical function on it. So it changes the number 20 that you enter into something different. So, for example, if you're calculating sales tax, you might say for every $20 I put in this cell, you need to multiply that by the sales tax rate to give me the sales tax that I'm paying on this particular item. So if I'm buying something worth $20 and there's 10% tax, the formula would multiply that 20 by 1.1, and it would tell you that what you're owing in tax then is $22 with the, the cost of the item. So with our machines, the tabulators that are used, 
we are not allowed to look at the source code because we have essentially outsourced our election tabulating to third-party private companies, and most of these companies are private equity groups that, by law, do not have to divulge who their owners are. So you don't even know who owns these companies. Are they owned by U.S. people? Are they owned by international conglomerates? We have no visibility into that. Uh, Additionally, we have no visibility into whether any of those cells that input the election votes have any formulas to them so that for every 10 votes this person gets, make it 11 votes for the other person, regardless of whether those ovals on the ballot were marked or not. Since we can't see whether there's manipulation going on behind the scenes because they will not allow us into the machines to look at the code, we have no idea if there are certain formulas or parameters that have been placed in there. And as all of us lay people can experience, we know that hackers can break into anything. They break into Fortune 500 companies. They break into government defense computer systems. All sorts of systems can get hacked into, and when that happens, havoc gets wreaked. And we don't often know exactly what's done until we get in and look at it later. So while someone's in there, they could be manipulating things in any sort of way. And, of course, you also hear, well, our machines are not connected to the Internet. Uh, But we have evidence uh, back in 2017, for example, where the Election Assistance Commission did not approve of any modems in ES&S DS200 machines, but they were shipped to counties with modems in them, and then work orders had to be issued to get them removed. However, a lot of these counties were not allowed to witness the third-party technicians that went in there to remove these modems, and so there was no way to validate whether they truly were removed or not, and oftentimes, with subsequent follow-up with maintenance on the machines, those techs are back in there again, and oftentimes they are not supervised because the staff is not allowed to look in them, but even if they were, a lot of them aren't savvy enough technology-wise to even know what they were looking at. And so we really don't know what these technicians going in and out of the machines are doing. And our staff, we can't expect our county officials to know cybersecurity, to even understand basic computer repair, to even know what they're looking at. It's, it's too much to expect of the people we elect and the people they hire who basically are paper pushers in the clerk's office. You know, they file death certificates and birth certificates and real estate transactions. You know, that's, that's a paper-intensive job. It's not a security job in the sense of people need training to be able to hold those positions. So we're expecting a lot, and the easiest way to solve this problem is let's not expect it. Let's just get rid of the machines, and then they don't have to be knowledgeable on them. All they need to do is be able to count. And unfortunately, these days, that seems to be really hard for our county officials to do, and I guess I'll blame Common Core Math for that. <laughs> so you, so my question, well, first of all, I, it's almost mind-boggling to think that our elections, which really affects our lives, the people that are put into office and the decisions that are made. I mean, it affects our lives. And there are people that just decide whether or not we go to war. 
I mean, these are big decisions. So this is something that we need to make sure that we can trust and that it is transparent. It seems like every person in America, every county clerk, every secretary of state would be working towards transparency and and fair and free and honest elections. But that's not what is happening, is it, Lisa? No, and oftentimes you get your local county clerk who's a neighbor, who's a friend, who goes to your church. You know them very well. They've been in your community for a long time. And those people are not necessarily the evil people that uh, are plotting against us. It's not a matter of that. Oftentimes what it is is they're just not savvy enough to understand how things can be manipulated, and they're sold a bill of goods that, well, if we randomly check this one precinct and it adds up and matches up to what the tabulator says, everything is good. But a true crook will understand where the weaknesses are. And there have been many, many years to evaluate where those weaknesses are. The analogy I like to give to people who tell me everything is fair and secure, the numbers add up and we hand-counted the precinct to what the tabulator machine gave us, so therefore it's perfect and we should continue using these machines, is if you had a home and you had a security expert come out to your home and tell you where the vulnerabilities were, where a crook could get in, maybe you've got a window that doesn't stay shut, doesn't lock, Uh, maybe you've got a broken lock on a door in the back of your house, whatever it might be that the security um, analyst finds. You're going to take that to heart. You're going to fix the lock, change the lock. You know, maybe you gave a key away a long time ago and that person never returned it, so that's a security vulnerability on your house. If you truly don't want to be burglarized, you don't want anything stolen, then you're going to fix those vulnerabilities. But when you just reply back, yeah, those vulnerabilities exist, but I've never been robbed before, you know, everything's always matched up. So we're just going to continue with the house with the same old lock where we lost the key, same old window that doesn't shut, then really what you're saying is that I don't care. And a lot of county commissioners and a lot of county clerks have had vulnerabilities pointed out to them. And their answer is, I don't see any problem with this because the numbers match up for us. And just because you haven't had an issue in the past doesn't mean you're not in the future. And additionally, just because you've checked one precinct and that one precinct or that one race matches up doesn't mean there hasn't been manipulation or changes elsewhere. And that's also not the only way to cheat. The machines are just one potential, I'm going to call it a a canyon of a pitfall, where things can go wrong. I am not the technical cyber expert to be able to go into all the details and minutia. This is for the lay person to understand Machines can be manipulated. Whether they have in your particular municipality or county is not the question. The question is, if they can, why would you want to continue? Because that means down the road in a future election, this could happen to you. And we just can't chance that with our election. No, we can't. Uh, and uh, so, again, you're, you're taking the, the question of, whether or not the last election was manipulated, just we're putting that over to the side right now. What you're saying, you've made the case, is that these uh, machines, these tabulating machines, can be ma- manipulated. And uh, because of that, we cannot trust them. And so because of that, we should not use them, correct? Absolutely. And I would even preface to say, uh, I think they're expensive. I, I think they're a big cost 
on the system, but if there are some costs because they're already paid for and the municipality wants to have these machines on hand, then I say hand count everything first and then run them through the machines and see if it matches up. Because a lot of times you'll have clerks say, oh, hand counting is far more inaccurate than the machines. The machines are spot on. They don't miss a beat. It's usually human error. Well, I like to use the analogy of very, very seldom is an election so close that you can count the difference of votes on one or two hands. Now, granted, we had a representative in Iowa 2020 that won by six votes, so it can happen, but rarely does that happen. Usually someone's winning by at least a couple hundred votes, if not thousands or tens of thousands of votes. If someone wins by 990 versus 1,000, I don't care if someone miscounted one ballot by one vote. There's sufficient margin that that person won. But if someone really wants to be a bean counter and be that accountant, run it through the machine, and where you find the anomaly where you're off by that penny, like on a bank statement, and you really want to find that penny, you can go back and find it. Absolutely, you know, accuracy is great that way. But it shouldn't be run through the machine first. It should be hand counted first. And if the machines are accurate, it should always match that hand count. Okay, so I think that uh, county clerks like the uh, tabulating machines versus a hand count because, uh, uh, what, you have to get volunteers in there? Uh, I mean, how difficult would it be to do a hand count? Is that a difficult thing to make happen? Well, so this is just my take on it because I have been involved with a hand count before and I've spoken to the people who've done the hand count And the process can be very monotonous. But the big problem that we have run into is with the machines, which a lot of municipal, county organizations have been pushing mail-in ballots in these machines. And they're pushing them because they're, especially mail-in ballots, because it's a cost savings. You don't have to hire as many people to run your election and you save all this money. But in reality, what's happened is with the machines, People, or I should say counties, have been consolidating precincts. Maybe a county used to have 25 precincts, and now they've kind of consolidated it down to 10 because they can have bigger precincts because more people are mailing in their ballots versus showing up in person, so they don't need to have as many polling places. Now, quite frankly, that does disenfranchise the voter that still votes in person because now they're having to drive a bit further to make it to wherever they're going. However, the big issue is that if you keep these smaller number of precincts and you have people hand counting, they're hand counting a larger total number of ballots than they would have been with a smaller precinct. And that does get a little bit more monotonous and harder for election judges to count. Most counties, and it varies because every county has a different size population, but in most average size counties, you usually have a thousand or less voters in a county. Some, in fact, are so small that you may only have a couple hundred people. And that's really quick to count with a few judges. So the real issue comes down to we have slowly been changing how we divide our jurisdictions to make it more difficult to hand count. So for the voter out there who may not understand, if you've consolidated from 1,000 votes per precinct and having 25,000 people in your county that vote in 25 precincts, 
and you're doing you're going down to twelve, now you're practically you're over doubling it. So now there's two thousand ballots for those people to count. And the higher that number gets, the longer it takes and the harder it is to get it all counted. So I would just recommend that we stay with really small precincts, not just for the hand counting aspect, but you know people better. If the precinct gets so large that 100,000 people in one city are all going to one location to vote, then no one's really going to know anyone that's showing up and recognize that, hey, you're new. We don't know who you are. You're not our neighbor that we recognize. So keeping it to the smaller precincts is very, very important. Okay. Excellent point. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, anything else about this particular uh, particular uh, vulnerability that is um, a, a, a significant potential uh, before we move on to the next uh, you know, next? The only one. other thing I would add is that no one has looked at how we conduct hand counting for efficiencies. And just like in the old days with the typewriter, and we had the quirky at the top. You know, why is our keyboard laid out the way it was? Because back in the old days, we had manual typewriters, and the typist was quicker than the, the strikes of the letter on the paper, and the mechanisms would get jammed because the keys would get stuck on each other. So they had to slow down the typist to avoid that problem. But technology improved, and that was no longer an issue, but we st- still have keyboards that have the quirky on them. And the reason for that is, is long gone. We don't need to slow down the typist any longer. But nothing has changed with the keyboard. I think that another thing we can look at is how do we hand count ballots? Do we really have the most efficient, effective way of counting them? No one's bothered to look at that because we're moving away from hand counting. So it's as if, like, why invent a, a better wagon wheel when the wagons are going away? And I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think there's probably a lot of ways that we can count more accurately by hand. I, I think so as well. And one other thing uh, I imagine people would say, oh, you, you said it would um, cost, you know, would have to have more staff so that that would be costly to do that. But uh, one of the things that we never talk about is here in Colorado, there are mail-in ballots that are sent all over the state. Okay, so Lisa, smaller precincts, that makes sense. But one of the things that you said earlier was that uh, that there might have to be more staff that might be probably on a part-time basis, I would imagine, to come in for elections. And you'll hear county clerks say, well, we don't have the money. But what I've seen with these mail-in ballots, uh, I mean, we're, we're papering the state in Colorado with mail-in ballots because we're not cleaning up our voter rolls. And so I think we could reduce a tremendous amount of cost uh, by addressing these mail-in ballots. What's your thoughts about mail-in ballots? So mail-in ballots are a big issue, and it varies from district to district, but you have areas where you might have as much as 80 to 90% of the population voting by mail-in ballot or absentee ballot. And some states do not allow for mail-in ballots, and some do. Obviously, Colorado does. But I want to speak generally because our audience is more than just Colorado. Regardless of whether your state allows for mail-in ballots, almost every state allows for absentee, and almost every state allows for unexcused absentee, not all, but most. And as a result, some people end up on a permanent absentee list, which means once you've signed up for it, 
you will constantly get a ballot in the mail until you alert the clerk that you no longer want to vote that way. It's a problem in lots of different avenues. For example, our First Amendment grants us the right to petition for a regress of grievances. And what that means is if we can't get our legislators to be on board with some piece of legislation that we want, we can always petition, get signatures by registered voters, and get something on the ballot to vote on. And Colorado is notorious for this, whether it's getting the wolf back into Colorado, whether it's marijuana, getting that into Colorado. We have constantly had ballot initiatives because we can't get the legislature to act one way or another. Well, what's the easiest way to find registered voters on voting day? That's when they're all going to show up to the polls to vote, and it's a lot more cost-effective and efficient to be able to be outside a voting polling place and getting voters to sign up for your petition. Now, of course, it shouldn't be anything that's on the ballot that day. That's electioneering, and you've got to be further away. But if you're petitioning, you're allowed to be there, and you're allowed to ask voters to sign and tell them what's going on. We are in areas where less than 10% of people are showing up, which means it's harder and harder to find where those voters live. That's a big problem. But going back to the actual election itself, with mail-in ballots, you have more potential for everything we've tried to protect with voting rights legislation than if you were actually at the polls. I'm going to use an example of things that happened many decades ago that were fixed through some of the voting legislation that has gotten passed in our country. One of the things that used to happen is people used to not be able to write or read. Very, very low level of education. As a result, they needed assistance at the polls. Someone would often be in the polling booth with them marking the ballot because they had to read it for them. With technology, things have changed. We now have equipment that will actually read what's on the ballot, and you can verbally cue it. Um, I still think it shouldn't be done that way because I'm not for machines in any way, shape, or form. But basically what happened is ways where people could cheat or influence before. So in other words, in a particular district, you could take advantage of someone who didn't read or write and regardless of how they wanted to vote, you could have filled it out any way if you were the person assisting because they wouldn't know any better. They wouldn't be able to read and see what you were doing. Now we don't allow that to happen. But with machines, it potentially can. And with mail-in ballots, it can happen even more because now the ballots are going to the home. And instead of no one being in the booth with that person to influence them, with no, like electioneering means you can't have anything that talks about a candidate or an issue on the ballot anywhere in the polling place to influence someone. You can't wear a hat, you can't wear a t-shirt, nothing at all. But when you're at home getting that ballot, you could have a bossy wife telling you, you got to vote this way. Or you could have a boss, especially a union boss, saying when you get your ballot, you need to take it to work and fill it out here and drop it off in the drop box at that we have visibility over so we can see how you voted. You need to show it to us before you send it in so we know that you voted the way we wanted you to. All of that could be happening in addition to like 2,000 mules where people are paid and ballots are collected. So the, the ballot may have gotten mailed to you, Kim, but it was intercepted by somebody else 
and now someone else is voting your ballot and you're not even aware of it. Or maybe you are. Maybe your boss said you've got to turn your ballot in if you want to keep your job. And so you turn your ballot over to your boss. So all sorts of undue influence can happen with those ballots. But even worse than that, um, I'm not sure if people uh, that are listening to this podcast will remember that about 20, 30 years ago, there were huge post office scandals. And those issues are still continuing at the post office where mail delivery clerks were not actually delivering mail. They were only paid till 5 o'clock, and if they weren't done on their route, they would just take that mail, put it in the trunk of their car, and never deliver it, or under their porch or into a ditch or wherever it was that they would dispose of that mail. And mail wasn't getting delivered. But likewise, postal workers don't make that much money. And although it's a federal crime, it's possible that they know when the ballots are getting delivered, and they might inform someone who will go around to mailboxes and steal ballots. Okay, today's the day, you know, today and tomorrow are the days we're delivering these ballots, and we're doing it in this neighborhood, and then a third-party person can come in and steal those ballots out of their mailbox. Everyone has heard of someone who's had their mail stolen from their mailbox, and that doesn't count possibly having it stolen from the mail processing center. And we constantly hear on the news about how after Election Day, oh, my gosh, all these ballots seem to mysteriously be found in the trash, in Mm -hmm. someone's trunk of their car, wherever else it may be. So there's no guarantee that your ballot is making there. But most importantly of all, there's no guarantee that how you voted is actually what's getting counted. Right. Well, and one other thing, I I was just thinking about nursing homes, and we've seen uh, some analysis where nursing homes have had a very high percentage of of residents that have voted, and uh, and and that can be somewhat questionable because um, we've had uh, I've seen different news stories of family members saying, "Oh, my my mom was you know not uh, her health has deteriorated so much uh, that that uh, you know there's no way she should have could have should have would have voted," and so I I see danger with you know all of these ballots going out to nursing homes here in Colorado if you. Um, apply for a government service or you get a new driver's license or renew your driver's license, you're automatically registered to vote. Well, that means those ballots are going out. What if, uh, for example, at our colleges and universities, those students move? What's what's happening with those ballots? And so I see tremendous opportunity for election manip- manipulation through these mail-in ballots, Lisa. Well, that isn't necessarily manipulation. That's fraud. (laughs) I guess that's Uh, true. That's true. uh, Because the only person that's allowed to vote that ballot is that person. And so if someone's not mentally capable, then they should not be voting. And if someone else fills out that ballot, that is fraud. So um, going to that, of course, um, Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice uh, Michael Gableman uh, in Wisconsin brought up all of these points because they have found those exact situations where 100% of the nursing home was not only registered to vote, but 100% did vote. And of those people in the nursing home, the majority were incapable of voting. Most of them were incapable of even being conscious. And so uh, there's no way those people could have indicated their desire to vote for a particular person or issue. And that was definitely a big problem in Wisconsin, but I'm sure it's a big problem across the country. It's just that it was exposed mostly 
in Wisconsin. So it's definitely something we have to be aware of. I think what a lot of people don't understand is that there's three stages to election fraud. There's the pre-election, so the preparation for the election, and, and what that is is getting people registered to vote that maybe aren't legally entitled to vote or voting in multiple locations when they shouldn't be because there's not a good way for one state to check if a person's also registered in another state. You get lots of snowbirds. You know, people are here for part of the year, and then the rest of the year they're, they're somewhere else. You know, maybe in the winter they go to Arizona because they don't want to deal with winters any longer. And so are they voting in two places? And you could say the same thing with college students. You know, maybe that college student is from Illinois, but they're now in Colorado, you know, at Boulder, and they're registered to vote there as well, but their parents in Illinois are enabling them to vote in Illinois by forwarding their ballot to them, which is illegal. You're not allowed to forward ballots. Um, the post office can't do it. As a matter of fact, even if your address is slightly incorrect, it's legally not right for the post office to say, oh, I know Kim Monson's at 123 Main Street, not 124 Main Street. I'll just put it in the right box. Technically, your mail delivery person is not supposed to be doing that. And so they're supposed to be sending it back to the clerk to say that the address is incorrect, they couldn't deliver it as addressed, and then the clerk is supposed to get that corrected. But that brings up a couple different issues as well, which is that one of the weaknesses with mail-in or absentee ballots is that if they do get returned as undeliverable for whatever reason, they get sent back to the clerk's office. In some states, they might get sent back to the Secretary of State's office, but mostly it's the local clerk's office. And when they get back to that local clerk office, what happens to those? I have heard people who've worked in those clerk offices tell me they're too busy to deal with it. They just throw them away. They just say, and, and then there's the other point of, are they really throwing them away, or do they go, these are ballots worth votes. This is worth money. This is worth selling to someone who would like these legal ballots and wants to vote them. So there is potential for fraud for those people to then take those returned ballots and go, these are free votes, either because the person's moved away, and quite frankly, I'm guilty of this too, I have not updated when I move, and I, I don't update the voter registration, I don't think about it. You think about all the other mail you get, you're updating your magazines, your bills, your credit cards, your bank statements, you don't think to update your voter registration address when you move. And if you move and you still keep the same P.O. box, then you don't really have to, but technically you should because you're at a different residential address now, and that part needs to be updated. So there's lots of ways where people can cheat. The thing is, most of us are honest, and we don't think about all of the ways that things can be cheated. And the biggest one is the ghost voter. And what the ghost voter is, is that in order for cheating to be effective, it doesn't make sense if you only have a thousand people in your county, let's say, and of those thousand people, eight um, hundred are allowed to vote. Even if you had a hundred percent voter participation, which is highly unusual, it's never that high. Um, you, if you had more than eight hundred people voting, you would question it. You'd be like, "How can we have more people voting than registered voters?" And then you should be questioning if you have voter registration above eighty-five percent anyway, because that is also an anomaly. It just doesn't happen. But people aren't paying attention to the numbers, and so they're inflating 
the inflate, they're inflating the voter rolls so that if they do need to come up with extra votes, they can legitimately claim some of the votes for the fake voters that they've created or also voters that historically don't vote, especially if it's not a big election like it's just a municipal election or a referendum election or something like that. And so people should make sure they always update their addresses. And I also highly recommend you've got to give up on the convenience of your absentee mail-in ballot. I know I, I, I've been a mail-in person my entire life in Colorado because I'm not native to Colorado. So as soon as I got here, mail-in existed. And I did that for every single election, thinking that everything would be fairly taken care of, not realizing that my ballot was probably the easiest one to disenfranchise. My vote was the easiest one to disenfranchise because I wasn't there in person. If I made a mistake on my ballot and I mailed it in, I can't cure it. If I went into the polling location and I actually ran my ballot through the scanner and the scanner rejected it, this is assuming we use machines, the, the judge there would allow me the chance to fix whatever the mistake was. But when I mail it in, I don't get that opportunity. And so my ballot may have been received, but I don't know that it was counted. Because if I had some kind of a mistake on it, they could pitch my ballot. And so you are giving up the guarantee that your vote is counting on lots of different fronts. The post office could lose your mail and not deliver it, or it could be delivered late and not counted. You can make a mistake on your ballot that rejects your ballot and you don't get a chance to cure it. Someone could intercept your ballot before you even get it and vote it for you and you don't even realize it. And you could be so busy, especially if it's an off-year election, that you don't even realize you didn't get a ballot and somebody else has voted it. So the biggest fraud is actually through mail-in ballots, and there's no way to tell, especially with a lot of these counties that have really lax signature requirements or none at all, to tell whether I filled out my ballot or whether my neighbor went into my mailbox, pulled out the ballots from my household and voted them all and voted them a different way than I would have intended to have them voted. And I think it's going to be difficult I to move people away from the mail-in ballot because they like the convenience. Um, what do you think about maybe a, a, a hybrid of you could go in and vote in person or each election cycle you could request an absentee ballot? But maybe a hybrid like that. What do you think about that, Lisa? So the only thing that I would accept along those lines of a hybrid is that it can only be an absentee ballot and that you have to request it every single year and you have to request it within 60 days of the election. So you can't request it January 1st for a November election. It has to be within 60 days of the election that you make that request. And you don't have to have an excuse. You know, I'll let you go without an excuse, uh, but you're going to have to do it every single year. Not you sign up for it and you permanently get it. Because people move, and I, I, on both sides of the party, Democrat, Republican, and guess what? They like getting their absentee ballot in Arizona, and they may have sold their house and don't live in Colorado any longer. But they're still getting their mail forwarded because they're permanently signed up for absentee, and the clerk doesn't have the bandwidth to check the number of people in their county if they've moved or not. They just assume your residence is still the same residence, and especially if you're up in the mountains, 
you know, this might not be the case for Denver necessarily, but up in the mountains, the majority of us do not get mail delivery at our home. We have to have a P.O. box. And that P.O. box, um, you know, can be collected by anyone and forwarded anytime. And we may never have lived in Colorado. You know, maybe we did at one point, but we've left a long time ago. But likewise, if we have an absentee ballot, we can always say, well, I'm always in Arizona in November, so mail it to me in Arizona, and I no longer live in Colorado, and I haven't for the last 10 years, but I sure do like being able to vote in both Colorado and Arizona. Which that is fraud to do that as well, right? It is. It absolutely is. You're not allowed to vote twice. And so, but that's happening. And, and, you know, it's also happening that a lot of parents are enabling their kids. I can't tell you how many parents I know who their kids have not only gone, like, either to the other part of the state or even out of state to school for their undergrad, but then they get a post-grad degree, and then maybe they go on to medical school or law school or something else, and they've been out of the state or at least out of the county for over a decade. And their parents are still enabling them by forwarding the ballots that come to the home address where they used to live a decade ago. And I guarantee that the majority of those kids are also voting wherever their university is located. Wow. Okay. You're making making the case. So we have these these uh, machines that can... Uh, that tabulate the vote. And, and I think your example that you'd given on that regarding using like Microsoft Excel and how you can, uh, you know, have these different algorithms, I guess that's what you call it, uh, and how that can change things. The mail-in ballots certainly are a tremendous concern. What else, Lisa? What else keeps you up at night on this? Well, so I know lots of good people who, like I know this guy named A.J., and his name is actually Anthony John, and I'm going to make up the last name of Smith, right? So Anthony John Smith. Sometimes he gets ballots under A.J. Smith. Sometimes he gets ballots under Anthony J. Smith. Sometimes he gets ballots under A. Period J. Period Smith. And technically, in the voter rolls, that's considered a different person because his name has been written differently every single time, even though it's the same person. That's another way for duplicate voting. Now, an honest person would go back to the clerk and return the extra ballots they received, but someone who needs extra cash or is deceitful, or deceitful, excuse me, would actually fill in all those ballots and turn them in and vote for their candidate whatever way they wanted to. So there's lots of ways to cheat that need to be checked but the number one thing is we've got to clean the voter rolls and we're not just talking dead people or people that have moved we're also talking about fictional people a lot of your listeners may not know that there are outside organizations that have access to updating changing and deleting the voter rolls get out the vote rock the vote Um, all these non-profit liberal organizations a lot of them have access in different states direct access to the voter rolls as if they were county clerks or election administrators, and they can make changes. And most of our state offices, like Secretary of State and local county offices, do not track who made the change. So they might be able to see that a change was made on November 10th, but they may not know who did it. There's no no name stamp to say someone from Rock the Vote made this change versus the Secretary of State's office made this change or the local county clerk's office made this change. And without legislators getting on board 
and making those mandated changes to the database that anyone who touches, even if they're just looking someone up in the system to make sure it's accurate, if there's not a date and time stamp and a name stamp to go with it, if you do find that someone is fraudulently entered in there, you have no idea how they got in. You may know the date, but you don't necessarily know who did it. And so it's really important to not give those outside groups direct access to our voter rolls. You think? Oh, my gosh. I mean, um, but that, that's a big thing in Wisconsin, too. Um, and, and I'm not sure how many states allow it, but many do. Many do. That's unbelievable. It's, I, I mean, it's mind-boggling. When, when we talk about election integrity and then the fact that uh, a private, uh, a nonprofit or a private organization would have access directly to our voter rolls and not even have to identify if they made the change, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that that's a big, big problem, Lisa. Well, and I will add this, too. I would think our elections are more important than our bank accounts. And yet banks have all sorts of audits and checks and balances. No one's allowed to like go into a vault alone. No one's allowed to do a lot of things alone. You have to have multiple people signing off. But yet with our election systems, it seems like they're open for anybody. They're easy to hack. There are no security systems in place that are significant enough to be able to thwart a lot of people that really would want to deceive us and do bad things during our election. And that, for me, to me, is just an eye-opener to the fact that all these people, secretaries of state, county clerks, et cetera, can say these were the most free, safe, and fair elections when they don't even have a system that's accurate or that's even followed. If you look at a lot of the 2020 election information, a big part of the problem is lack of chain of custody. Okay, ballots get pulled out in a suitcase from under a table. Where's the chain of custody on that? Or you had the truck driver from New Jersey who said he delivered ballots to Pennsylvania and that when he delivered them, he's supposed to get a chain of custody slip that he delivered them, and they refused to give him one. So uh, what, what does that say about those ballots he delivered if they don't even want to give him a chain of custody form to acknowledge that he delivered those ballots? So when you have this lack of transparency, this lack of audibility, both digital and physical, this lack of common sense care for how important our elections and these votes are, how can we feel secure? How can we feel that things were done correctly? Or if you have 95% of the late ballots and hundreds of thousands of them coming in and they're all votes for Joe Biden. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't add up. And that's why so many of us question the integrity of our elections. So Lisa, what do we do about it? We everyday people, what do we do? Most definitely we have to stop being lazy. It is not a privilege. It's, It's a right to be able to vote. And as such, with every right, we have responsibilities as, as citizens. And so we need to get off our dust and stop accepting mail-in ballots. We need to vote in person. And with the rare exception being the absentee ballot because you are sick, ill, out of the country, whatever the case may be. And I think that Americans are so used to convenience that they forget there's a price to pay for that. And that price we're paying is not just at the ballot box with who we elect or don't elect to office, but we're paying for it economically. You know, there's the old adage that if your tires are properly inflated, you can save three cents a gallon. 
Well, I'll tell you, if our votes were counted properly, we could probably save $3 a gallon today. (laughs) I don't think gas prices would be what they are today if it weren't for the fact that Biden ended up as president. So what I would suggest to everyone is you need to get involved, become an election judge. We need to stop having these ridiculous rules that you have to be 20 feet away where you can't see anything um, if you're going to be an election or judge or a poll watcher. We can't have that. We need to have complete transparency. It needs to be realistic and reasonable. And we need to know our rights. But most importantly of all, we need to get rid of this perpetual absentee and mail-in ballot. And we need to hand count. Now, there's lots of ways to cheat with hand counting, too. But those are easier for a regular person to figure out and spot than a machine where things are hidden and we have no visibility into how they're actually working. Wow, Lisa, thank you so much. Uh, because first of all, you've, uh, you've taken, I know you've done a ton of research on this and you have, have been able to put this together so that everyday people can understand what has been happening, what the challenges are, and why it is so important. And uh, uh, I, I love the analogy that uh, if your votes, uh, how, however you said that was, uh, you could save $3 a gallon. And I think that that's uh, super important. So what's your final thought that you would like to leave with uh, our listeners today? You have to inform yourself and you have to inform those around you. You need to look into this for yourself. You need to read what's out there and you need to question your authorities. If you have people in your county, state, or federal government that are telling you they're not going to get you information that your tax dollars paid for and that you're going to have to pay exorbitant fees or FOIA to get the information or, better yet, get an attorney because they're not going to do anything for you, that's telling you that there's something that these officials are trying to hide. And that's not the way that our government should operate. Our taxpayer dollars pay for their salaries, pay for their computers, pay for their emails, pay for everything that they are in control of. And, and fees to collect things, as long as they're reasonable, that's fine, that's understandable. But when they're exorbitant, uh, like in Utah, you, you've got Sophie and Jen, who are the two red pills out there. Uh, you know, they filed for some FOIA requests for some emails, and it amounted to about 4,000 emails. And the Utah government wanted to charge them $100,000 to get that information. Wow. They won in court. Um, but my final, my final thoughts for everybody is you have to get involved. You have to know the rules of the game. You can't play stupid any longer. You need to read what the laws are, know what your rights are, and you need to assert them. Don't let our government walk over you because you will lose your rights just like we are right now. Lisa Bennett, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it, and uh, I've learned so much. And, again, you've, you've really put this in a package that people can understand. So thank you so much. Can I add one more thing, Kim? Absolutely. I'm so sorry. Yeah. You know, I, I only just discovered this, and I don't have as much information as I'd like, but when a ballot is rejected by the scanner because it can't read something because something, an oval wasn't filled in quite right, an election judge can transfer that ballot to a new ballot. So let's say a crayon mark was across the page because a young child ruined the ballot. Um, they can transfer that to a new ballot so that it will scan in the machines. But what I'm finding out as well is that the military ballots, the absentee ballots from military from overseas, those are not the ones that go through our machine normally. They're, you know, they're not the same ballot that we get at home. And I didn't realize that until recently. So our military ballots, I'm told, have to be transposed onto the ballots that you and I would receive at home. And as a result, we have to trust that some election judge 
is doing that. And additionally, when you mail in your ballot, sometimes it's the same pair of election judges opening the ballot and scanning the ballot and tabulating it. So it's not as secret as you think because it's the same person or same two people that connect the signature with the actual ballot and they know how you're voting. So mail-in ballot is not as secret as you think it is. And I just wanted your voters to understand, or your listeners (laughs) to Mm. understand that. Okay, Lisa Bennett, thank you. Um, I think that we probably will need to do another podcast on this as we continue um, moving through this whole um, um, election integrity, manipulation, fraud issue. But Lisa Bennett, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Kim.